Welcome to the weekend edition of the Daily Stoic. Each weekday, we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, something to help you live up to those four Stoic virtues of courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. And then here on the weekend, we take a deeper dive into those same topics. We interview Stoic philosophers. We explore at length how these Stoic ideas can be applied to our actual lives and the challenging issues of our time. Here on the weekend, when you have a little bit more space, when things have slowed down, be sure to take some time to think, to go for a walk, to sit with your journal, and most importantly, to prepare for what the week ahead may bring. The Daily Stoic is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. One of the cool things about podcasts is that you can multitask while you're listening, but depending on what you're doing right now, like for instance, if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing. You could be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $698 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. T-Mobile.com. Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked, upstarting. Get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul hath spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door, quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming. And the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted never more. Hey, it's Ryan. Welcome to another episode of the Daily Stoic Podcast. You hopefully, maybe, just a quiver of recognition of those last two stanzas of Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven, which is what I'm going to be talking about a little bit in today's episode. Uh, my guest, Catherine, or Cat Bab Majera, is the author of a really funny, awesome, illustrative new book called Poe for Your Problems, Uncommon Advice from History's Least Likely Self-Help Guru, Edgar Allan Poe. It's a fascinating book. It draws on Poe's work and life, um, what he can teach us both to do and not to do. You might have heard his life was a bit of a mess and how we can use like the tough situations, the tough breaks, the bad luck, all the things that Poe experienced, all the things we all experience to make great work and to hopefully uh, carve out uh, an interesting life for ourselves. Kat is a great writer. She's written everywhere from Slate, Quartz, CNBC, NBC News. She's appeared on NPR and uh, many, many other places. She has an MA in creative writing from the University of Auckland, New Zealand. She lives in Richmond, Virginia with her husband and a new baby. I really like this book. I almost never blur books. I have a rule against it. 
Um, and uh, this was a place I made an exception for a friend. Uh, I said that books about people's successes are common. Books where you can learn from someone's painful demons and failures are rare, but far more meaningful. And this writing on Poe is insightful, funny, and important. It was, uh, it was a fun book to read. It was a fun conversation to have. And my first interactions with Poe go back to, I remember uh, reading uh, the great illustrated classics as a kid, and they had a collection of Poe's stories. And I remember, uh, as we talk about in the thing, uh, in the interview, uh, the story of the guy they seal up in the wall. But I think the one that haunted me the most was the telltale heart. Poe was just a complete master of the short story and of the poem. I personally like uh, Ambrose Bierce a little bit better, uh, slightly, I guess, more modern than and, and feels accessible than Poe. But uh, nerding out, but but going through this book gave me a, a deeper appreciation of Poe. And then, of course, nerding out about it on this episode was great. Click the show notes for her homepage, follow her on Instagram and Twitter, sign up for her email list. And of course, check out her new book, Poe for Your Problems, and enjoy this interview. I saw this funny meme the other day that was, um, it was like this hole in, the, in a brick wall. And it was saying like, we need someone to help us uh, like find out what's back here. And it was like, you must be small, willing to get dirty and not have read the story, The Cask of Amontillado. <laughs> right. Uh, I thought it was so funny. And I thought it was funny just that like, how many writers from that era can people make memes about that most people would get? Right. I mean, the sheer amount of Tumblr posts about Poe, unreal. I remember Vox doing a story on the Cask of Amontillado memes a couple of years ago. And and what like why did he cross over? Like like I mean I guess maybe there's like some Moby Dick jokes or whatever, but like almost no writers crossed over the way that Poe has crossed over, nor had the had the staying power that he's had. That's true, and it's hardly the case that he was the only person writing gothic short fiction. It was a very popular form, especially in the decades before he came along. So he grew up reading it, but then as an adult sort of perfected it to the point where the, I mean, that's a big question, but I think the psychological insight, the the amount of levels that are in a single story and the way that you can, like a child can read them and academics are kept busy by them. And the fact that one writer is able to do both those things, I don't know, I I think, it probably comes down to the psychological inside of those stories. There's also like a great vein of humor in Poe that people just don't tend to talk about too much. Is it is it that he's actually a genius or is it like a freak of circumstances that like, I don't know, like nobody looks at E.L. James and goes like the Fifty Shades <laughs> of Grey is so good because it's such a work of genius. We sort of it's it's weird, right? Like sometimes when something is very popular, we use that as an indicator that the creator is not particularly talented and that the work is not of particular significance or seriousness. And then it's like, if they're popular over a really long period of time, then the exact opposite is true. Yeah, people call Poe a bad writer. It's, I mean, all the time, a lot of academics have that opinion of him. And it's not that he wasn't, he wrote some bad stuff. Some of his sentences just make you wince. But when he was good, he was really good. I don't think he was just the E.L. James of his era that ended up getting so much publicity. In a way, you could almost say that it's kind of the case that as a writer, his books ended up getting a ton of promo beyond his reputation in his own era, just because of the controversy that resulted almost immediately from his death that continues to this day. So in right. a way he has benefited from that, but I don't think you could have had an empty product to begin with that could have had that kind of staying power. Yeah. And he wasn't super appreciated in his own time, right? It's not like Agatha Christie or E.O. James where you're like wildly successful in your own life. And then sort of like, as the years pass, the shine wears off with the Melvilles and the Poe's uh, and, you know, other writers it's more of a, like, we're almost making up for their lack of appreciation. And so the popularity is, isn't a fad. 
it's probably more a result of like sustained appreciation for the quality of the work. I think that's true. I mean, he didn't have a, he wasn't really a book writer in his own time, uh, but he didn't have a single book go into a second edition, except for this one about seashells that was essentially a scam and wasn't his real creative work. So how does someone, um, how does someone deal with being massively underappreciated? That would like, that feels like it would crush a lesser person, right? You work so hard on something I mean, you're just going through this, not not at this scale. I'm not saying your book's a failure. What I'm saying is like you you put so much into a creative work or a company or a business or a play or you know, whatever the thing you do is. And then even though you know it's really good, people are like, meh. You know, how do, how does that not crush a person? Right. I mean, I think this is where you kind of come into like the perverse lesson of Paul's life and that having a gigantic ego that almost can't be reached from the outside can be useful because if Poe had been sensitive to criticism, he would have given up. He you know, would have just crawled in a sewer line or something, but he was impervious to it to a very great degree an almost pathological degree, uh, convinced of the greatness of his own work. And he wasn't wrong either. So while this could have bad manifestations, you could have someone with an utterly impervious ego who was producing bad work. This was the rare circumstance where the work was both great and the ego was strong enough to give him the wherewithal and fortitude to keep going. Yeah, I remember when I was working in Hollywood, I was talking to this sort of very experienced agent manager type. And he was like, look, the reason ego exists in Hollywood is you have to understand where like an actress is at the beginning of her career, which is that they go to audition after audition after audition after audition meeting after meeting after meeting and people are like no no you're not good enough you're not this they're just hearing no all the time and somehow they have to leave each one of these meetings convinced the world wants to hear my name so it's this paradox of like the 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 mechanism that allows you to succeed in this irrational, insane, often wrong industry uh, is also like a nightmarish set of personality traits. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it can work for you. I mean, to the extent that I've learned from Poe's life, I'm not a person who comes to the playing field that way. I tend to be very self-questioning and maybe too open to criticism, but picking up just 10% from Paul in that way, it can be enormously useful as a person in any line of creative pursuit. So what is, how, how does one get the right balance of it where you're sort of impervious to the criticism that would make you stop, but then not deaf to the feedback that would make you better? I mean, I know in my own life, it's like if my husband tells me something's not working, then I tend to believe him because he knows me and he has my best interests at heart. So maybe it's just listening to the right people. Whereas if someone just says something mean to me on Twitter, <laughs> then I'm less inclined to believe them. I mean, sometimes you look at the motivations of people who are saying things to you, right? And sure. try to judge whether you know this is criticism that's coming from a place that could be helpful or not. But like, I think about your book, which I read and I think is awesome. Um, the paradox of your book and all books is that like the vast majority of agents and editors that saw it passed on it, like by definition, oh, yeah. right? Like, like, like every project, even the ones that go into like a bidding war, there were still a bunch of people that were like, no, that's not good. That won't work. So it's this For weird sure. thing. Or like the people who are supposedly the experts on the thing that you're trying to do, you are having to defy a majority of them. And that all creative work that's successful had to defy that. It's kind of, it's like, if you think about it too much, you're, it, it, I think gets you back to that line from the screenwriter, William Goldman, where it's basically just like, nobody knows anything. Right. I mean, I can think of an example, but... Okay, so the first round of submissions with my book, we I was with a different agent and she had this kind of highfalutin vision for the book that we were going to 
go to a big imprint somewhere prestigious. And this was going to be a very literary title. And one of the things we heard, so all 16 of those folks that we approached rejected it. That was the first set of rejections. Anyway, one of the people who... Oh, amazing. It definitely, it was good for my mental health. Um, the, I don't want to say which press it is. Someone who is in a very powerful position over like a legacy set of books at Viking yeah. <laughs> uh, said about my idea, simply, that's not legitimate. It's not legitimate to see Poe as an existential hero. And I'm sorry, that's just ignorant. The French have seen him this way for 150 years. So in some cases, you're able to be impervious to it because you know that, I mean, it's historically inaccurate. Like that's right. that view has not been put forward in America necessarily, certainly not in a pop self-help book, but it's been around since Baudelaire was writing obituaries about. Right. Yeah, it's, it. I think it's like, if this is just something that you pulled out of your ass and you're like, oh, that's what I think. And then everyone tells you you're wrong. You should probably stop and reconsider. But it's like, uh-huh. when you've really done the work and it's based on something. I think then you can be a little bit more confident about it. And the thing I always, I always think about is like, well, what am I trying to do? So when the person says like, oh, that won't work or what about this? Or, you know, they give you all this, you're like, but are we trying to get to the same place? You know? And some, so sometimes the feedback obviously rejections are a little bit different than feedback, but like when you really know what you're trying to do and you have a really good theory as to why you think it can work, you realize like a lot of the people who are rejecting you or giving you feedback, it's because they're, they're holding you to a totally different standard and saying, you're not going to meet that. And you're like, well, I wasn't trying to do that to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing I ran into again and again was trying to articulate the degree to which the book is satire and yet serious. Mm-hmm. And I kept hitting people who were willing to see it as one or the other, but not both, which is funny because that's like the tension in Poe's own work. And maybe you just spend enough time with him and you pick up traits. But the thing about his stories are you can't often tell like how satirical he's being versus how serious he's being but i like that tension it keeps me coming back to him it keeps me rereading him maybe it's not for everyone but trying to file it in a single slot you're just mistaking the whole enterprise right that was my take going into it i remember when i was writing my book conspiracy like my editor and i kept sort of going back and forth and i finally had to go like look let's put all this aside I'm going to tell you the book that I am going to write, right? Like this Mm -hmm. is what the book will be. This is what my goal is for it, right? So when you give me notes, they better get me closer to this thing or like I don't need them, right? And that can feel, I I probably felt a little egotistical and I know it was like hard for me to get to a place where I felt confident enough saying that, but I was like, you know what? I've done this enough times. I know why I agreed to take on this project. And I also know, this is more humility, I won't be able to get there if, like, I'm having a hard time remembering the directions already. If somebody's shouting out conflicting or incorrect directions on top of that, I'm definitely going to get lost. So I think what what sounds like you were trying to do is something that not a lot of people understood. And then you had to, when you're doing that, as Poe did as well, you have to remember what that is always because the people who don't understand don't keep quiet about it. And then they sort of mess you up by going like, well, what about this? Or this isn't working or it's too, and you're like, I'm trying to do something that's a little contradictory by definition. So you pointing out that I contradict myself here or that, or whatever, like that's a feature, not a bug. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I admire that stance in the face of the issue you were having with your editor. I haven't always been really clear in my resolve. I was when the final product was happening. Earlier, when we were more in the proposal stage, I was being swayed kind of by feedback that I was getting and trying to take it in various directions. And I think one reason it didn't sell and it didn't work is because it wasn't really true to my vision of the project. But it's hard to insist on that when it doesn't exist yet. I mean, in a sense, 
it's a tough creative brief to write. Yeah. I'm not saying that it's better for that reason, but it's a tough creative brief to write a self-help book based on someone who's famously perverse and a drunk and <laughs> kind of a horrible person at moments. And not but particularly think, successful. <laughs> no, certainly not in his lifetime, you know. Right. Uh, but I also think that that's precisely the meat of the project. That's where you start to hit gold when you are turning over stones that folks maybe haven't, at least not in the U.S. I mean, the question of whether you can harness your perversity and make it work for you on some level, like, that's a question I want to hear more about. That's worth a buck to me. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. Opening up to a therapist might feel uncomfortable, exhausting, or exhilarating, but one thing's for certain, if you keep talking or texting with a licensed therapist, you'll gain insights and uncover truths you can only find in therapy. If you want some personal breakthroughs and judgment-free support, you can sign up right now for Talkspace. At Talkspace.com, you sign up online, you get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's incredible incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist, and you do it from the comfort of your home. There's no need to commute to appointments, miss time at work, or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. And to celebrate May, Mental Health Awareness Month, and the power of talking it out in therapy, Talkspace is offering every listener of this podcast 80 bucks off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com slash stoic. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month with code SPACE80. 80 and show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash Stoic code space 80. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the job. In fact, we were just hiring for Daily Stoic and we found our new podcast editor on LinkedIn Jobs because LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. Over 2.5 small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring like we do, as I was just saying, because LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, sometimes even faster than that. You can hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash stoic. That's linkedin.com slash stoic to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, Right. And look, like, I, I think there's also something about creative projects that maybe goes a little bit undiscussed, but like, there's a certain amount, like Stephen Pressfield believes in the muses. And, and I think Elizabeth Gilbert calls it the sort of the big magic or whatever. But there is kind of like a mystical like, uh, ness to it where it's like, look, I didn't choose this. This is what it this is what came to me. I can't really do anything else. Like, you know, like it might be more commercially viable to do a takedown of Poe or to do, you know, a total celebration of Poe or a different author. But like, this is the one that hit you over the head when you were walking down the street and uh, for better or for worse, you're stuck with it. Yeah. I mean, sometimes the sheer amount of intellectual energy you feel in response to an idea is a really good gauge, not just of like the viability of the project altogether, but whether you can stick with it. And I mean, every, like, so I first experienced this in my own life that Poe was cheering me up. And then I was trying to understand my reaction to why it was happening. And I was having trouble articulating it myself. And to kind of steer into that skid proved really useful like, to it's kind of like driving when you don't know exactly where you're going or how exactly you're going to get there. I don't know. That's so much more intriguing to me and such a more enjoyable process than that. Like if it's paint by numbers, what's the point? At sure. least for me. Sure. Uh, so I don't know. So maybe you found it. Sorry, go on. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, do you find that if you're given an a you probably not often given assignments these days, but if you're given an assignment and someone says to execute on their idea, you just find it almost impossible or at least not a joy to do. Whereas yeah. if you're executing on your own. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think the whole point of the creative life is that you're trying to get to some kind of autonomy where you're sort of in control of what you do and say and think. 
and uh, very few of us get there. But like, if we were good at taking directions, we'd probably <laughs> be textbook writers or you know advertising executives or something, right? Like, this is mm-hmm. part of part of why we got into this is because we really can't do it any other way. I definitely think that's true. It's kind of both the barrier to get permission to do those things is very tough, but then without it, where are you? Well, that's one of the things I liked in the book is you sort of, you you sort of go into the idea that like, look, Poe's just like a freelancer grinding it out like the rest of us. And, uh, you know, you see these, even like when you read, um, uh, Walter Isaacson's biography of Da Vinci, you're like, the greatest artist of all time is like being bossed around by these patrons and he's like finding subtle ways to spite them or assert his independence. And he feels like he's underpaid and he feels like they're rushing him. You're just like, this is a very old journey that we're on the, like, I'm trying to make ends meet, do work that doesn't make me want to kill myself. And, uh, you know, also survive. And I think that's in a sense, like, I'm not glad that folks have suffered. Not at all. It's not fair that they had such difficult lives, but also the fact that it is a very old struggle. And maybe this has kind of always been the territory. I find that enormously comforting. It means you're not alone in it. It means you're not necessarily going about it the wrong way. Maybe this is just what it's like. And I also think that one of the lessons of Poe's life for me, and especially his freelance career, was that sometimes responding to the market or get, just simply getting information from the marketplace can be enormously valuable, whether you follow it or not, like whether you act on it in a straightforward way or you don't. It's this entire source of information and feedback that a lot of artists tend to ignore or try to ignore. Say if you're a trust funder, you can ignore it. But if you're a struggling freelancer like Poe was, you're not allowed to divorce yourself from the market and it ends up shaping you and you end up shaping it back. But why are so many incredibly talented people, why do they seem to just generally be super bad at the politics and details and like logistics of their profession? I mean, people are described as well-rounded on a fairly regular basis, but there are very few people I've ever met who truly are and who also have a kind of superpower, you know, where you have developed your craft to the level of like a Poe or a Melville, it puts you out of balance. The hours that you have to put in to be good, the kind of dedication and obsession that often goes into that to reach like a true genius level. And I'm not claiming at all to be there or near there, but having read a lot of literary biographies, you do kind of see what goes into it. And it's not at all characterized by well-rounded functional personalities or a lot of work-life balance. It's just not how the sausage gets made. Yeah. Like I wonder if you met like Fitzgerald or Poe or whatever, you'd just be like, come on, man, this isn't that hard. (laughs) You know, like you just see like historically it, it feels like the, the decks were stacked against them or they had their demons or whatever. I wonder if you were like friends with them. Like if you read some of like Hemingway's correspondence with Fitzgerald, he's just like, you can just feel him just like putting his hand over his face, just like so frustrated that his friend has all the talent in the world and just like keeps sabotaging himself. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, I'm not giving folks a pass for being nightmares, even if they're geniuses, but the rate at which people are also nightmares and also geniuses, like it tends to coincide and you do notice that without necessarily endorsing it. Yeah. Well, it's, it, I think people go like, oh, Poe is a nightmare uh, and a genius. Therefore, if I want to be a genius, I should be a nightmare. And it's like, first off, uh, you know, there were a lot of nightmares who didn't become geniuses, but right. I think when you're also, and this is what I like about your book, but, but also sort of hovers uh, along the lives of all of these people, whether we're talking about a Kanye West or a Scott Pichelle, you're just sort of like what work it costs them, you know, like if they weren't like 
grinding themselves into dust, making constant enemies, drinking themselves into oblivion or whatever, like, could there have been another Great Gatsby or, you know, could there have been another The Raven? Like, like what, what work in the way that, you know, Steve Jobs lost control of Apple and almost didn't get it back, right? Like, the whole future of humanity would have turned out differently. Like it is, it is, um, it's kind of har uh, harrowing to think about like what got lost or left on the table with some of these talents. Yeah. I mean, I think of Poe dying at 40 when in 1849, he was doing some of his most incredible work. I think that's the year of a dream within a dream. It's Annabelle Lee you know, some of the, the masterful, mature works where he's, where they function on so many levels, they suit a popular audience, they suit a critical audience. You could spend, you know, a decade with each of them. So if there had been more of those, that would be amazing. I have this recurring dream where I find post journals, they don't actually exist. But I constantly imagine that I am going to discover more but also, I don't know, the shape of his life now, it's hard to divorce what work we do have from the way things went, like the horrible death, the horrible loss and tragedy that went into it. Well, so let's talk about that. For people who don't know, what what is, uh, how does Poe go out? It's sort of almost fitting for a Poe story. Yeah, I mean, people refer to it as like the greater mystery than anything he came up with in text. So. The last year of his life is very troubled. Um, his wife died in early 1847 and Poe kind of went off a cliff for a good year. And by the time 1849 rolled around, he's in these strange relationships with various women that aren't really, they're not sexual, they're bizarre romantic entanglements where no one's really available emotionally or otherwise. But he's in these and he's drinking a lot and he's, leaving home and he never really did well when he was on the road. So anyway, it's a train of bizarre behavior that whole year. And then in early October, he leaves Richmond where he's been hanging out with people who knew him in his youth. And he, the next thing we know, he shows up in Baltimore and he's found by someone who knows him. He's wearing someone else's clothes. He's in a ditch outside a tavern and he's not coherent. It's not clear that he was necessarily drunk at that stage. He definitely seems to be ill. And he never recovers consciousness to the point where he can explain what's happened to him, where he's been in the last few days, how he came to be wearing someone else's clothes, you know, what's wrong, essentially. And then he dies just a few days later. He died October 7th. And he was being cared for by doctors and nurses, but all of them changed their story so many times about what exactly seemed to be going on. Plus, it's hard to parse the 19th century science. So they figuring were, out they were, what he they actually were basically did. quacks. Right. I once asked a neuroscientist, like, what did what did brain fever mean in the 19th century? And he said it was applied to so many things that you couldn't possibly figure out what it might have been. Right. Yeah. They they were probably talking about bleeding him or, you know, like the, yeah. the, the tools at their disposal were probably uh, preposterously bad. Right. And to the degree to which people have read into bad information that we've got about the death, I mean, people have supposed it was rabies or gas poisoning or alcoholism or epilepsy, or I mean, it kind of just goes on and on. People have assumed that he was in like, it was called cooping, where people were got very, <laughs> they were made very drunk. And then made to vote many times. There was an election going on about the time Poe collapsed. So that's, my that's favorite one theory. theory that's <laughs> right. Uh, I don't know if I buy it, but I see how they got there. What What is your guess? I think he was ill with some kind of disease that was that figured mentally and physically from the very beginning of 1849. I don't know what it was. But I don't think that it was necessarily induced by alcohol. I think kind of too much is made sometimes of, of post drinking, which was more episodic than steady. Um, I don't know that we can know either, which is, it's not the most satisfying answer, but I also think it's better than supposing some, like coming up with some bullshit and pasting it in the spot. Welcome to 
Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. You could say, right, the obstacle is the way I've always been a student of failure, of things that go wrong. It's so easy to celebrate things going right, but we can learn a lot from when it doesn't go right. Each week, David Duchovny chats with guests like Ben Stiller and Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalyst for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure. Fail better together. Fail better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases. The time is now more than ever to embrace breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that have enthralled you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers. My wife and I have both been raving about this book, Furious Hours. Whether it's kids' books, my books, thrillers, history books, the Stoics, it doesn't matter. You can find whatever you're looking for on Audible. My belief is that books are important and amazing. I'm little bias, of course, as an author. And whatever gets them into your brain, I'm all for. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. Visit audible.com slash dailystoic or text dailystoic to 500-500. That's audible.com slash dailystoic or text dailystoic to 500-500. My... I think it's, that's my second favorite literary death story. My first is, do you know the story about who's a similar writer, um, sort of both brilliant, underappreciated, famous, not famous enough. Um, do you know about the death of Ambrose Bierce? No, but I love him. Oh, he's incredible. So Ambrose Bierce, again, similar thing towards the end of his life, although he lives to be much older, sort of becomes bitter and more bitter than he already was disillusioned, irrational. He sells all of his possessions. He goes through a tour of the Southern United States, visiting all the Civil War battlefields that he fought on. Um, then he sends a letter to uh, his, and, and he tells people he's going to go uh, meet Pancho Villa and write about it, <laughs> who's like at the time sort of ravaging the Southern border. And his like last known communication is a letter to his niece or his daughter-in-law or something like that that basically just goes like, I don't know what's going to happen to me. Uh, I could get lost. I could get stood up against a wall and shot somewhere. Who knows? But if I make it all, let you know. And then that's the last he's communicated that, that anyone ever hears from him again. And the there is, from what I've read, significant evidence that he may have been captured and executed by Pancho Villa. So you have this sort of guy notorious for like twists and unexpected surprises in his short stories. Uh, also stories about executions accidentally or deliberately predicting his own death. And then no one ever finds the body or hears from him ever again. That's an amazing, an amazing story. It makes me worry that what you're into is a kind of destiny, <laughs> um, which I hope isn't true <laughs> for my own life. But I don't know. Both Poe and Birch seem to have this in common, and it says that the, the death is emblematic of the work and the life. I think so. I mean, one of the I, I've read a lot. I've read a lot more about Birch than Poe, but one of the things that I heard about beers. I wonder if it applies to Poe. I'd be curious for your take. But they basically said, you know, you take these people who like, I mean, Beers's nickname is Bitter Beers, right? They, they think he's this sort of bitter, disaffected, angry person. And that that means he's like cynical and negative. And and they, 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 they said the people who knew him said it was actually the opposite. He was very idealistic, very hopeful, um, had very high standards for himself and other people. And it was the constant disappointment of these standards that eventually sort of drives him, not insane, but drives him down this dark place. So it's like he, it wasn't that he was cynical, it's that he had impossible expectations that were, that were constantly going unmet that made him uh, ultimately seem very cynical. And I, I wonder how much of that is uh, 
a result of, I wonder how much that sort of sensitive thing that artists bring into the world. Did Poe have that? Is that what made him drink and, you know, sort of go to this egotistical place, like as a form of self-protection? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that was one of the ways it functioned in his life. I mean, I think you, A, people often underestimate the role of initial earnestness and cynicism. I mean, Jonathan yeah. Swift was incredibly earnest and he meant his satires in some senses. I mean, it was driven by his anger at the conditions in the world and finding it so far afield from what he thought it should be. I mean, how else would people get there? Of course, that's how they get there. With Poe specifically, I think, all right, trauma might be a word that we use too much now. But if you look at the specific timeline, especially of Poe's early childhood, uh, so when he was between two and three years old, he likely witnessed his mother's decline and death from tuberculosis, which is a horrible drawn out death where you are gasping and gasping for air over a period of time. And then you essentially just drown in your own body. So for someone between two and three to witness this is already born sensitive. Uh, it's a time in child development where you're able to perceive so much more than you're able to say, because you're not really able to say much of anything. And then you have post-career, which is, he said, mournful and never-ending remembrance was his great subject. So mourning and grief. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that he had this early, almost pre-language experience. And then he spends his whole life articulating grief, you know, writing some of the greatest, they call it treaties, like the Raven and the refrain of nevermore. I don't think those things are unrelated. Yeah. It's like once you have, like you sort of read some of these things as a kid or as a creator, and then you have kids and you're just like, no one should go through that. Of course that would screw you up so terribly. Right. How, how did you even get out of bed? Like it, it's insane. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I read all this child development theory. You know, this is, I started the project before I had my own kid, but my little one's now 16 months old. And I can see it, I can observe it in him that he is able to perceive and absorb and take on so much color that he's not able to articulate. And it makes me angry, frankly, at how often people underestimate children, especially very young children. You know, psychologists thought for 100 years that children couldn't grieve, which is so ludicrous to me. If anything, they're probably grieving harder because they don't have any precedent or, you know, adult balance to somehow address it within themselves, embrace themselves. Yeah. Or what's that idea that like, um, I, I forget what the age, but you know what object impermanence is? Right. It's like, imagine if you didn't know where stuff disappeared, when stuff disappeared, where it went, <laughs> you would be grieving constantly. Like, I, th I thought about this if, to go to the point of like where some of the terror thing goes from. It's like, let's say you're 16 months, right? And not to freak you out about, about your son, but like you put your son down for a nap or for bed. You, you're, you're, you're holding him, you're singing him to sleep. It's this peaceful, wonderful, wonderful thing. You lay him down in the crib, you turn off the lights, they go to sleep. And then they just wake up. All their senses have been deprived. It's pitch black. They don't know that they were asleep. They don't know where the hell you went. Uh, they don't know if they're still alive or like, <laughs> they don't know anything. That would be the most ungodly, terrifying thing in the entire world. And we just like, uh, we just brush over it. Like it's, like it's nothing. Yeah, it, the way we expect them to have some grip on things that they have no sense of, it's unreal. And it's almost, I mean, in some cases, like bordering on cruelty. I mean, particularly, with, I don't know. I just don't think that we give them at all enough credit. I think they have way more self-control than they're allowed, you know, just in popular discourse or whatever. Yeah, no, we go like, oh, this kid cries a lot. And then you're like, um, no, they if they should be cry like if you think about how terrifying and uncertain and inexplicable life was, it's kind of a uh it's it's kind of uh impressive that they're not crying literally every second that they're awake. Exactly. Exactly. 
So, I mean, I don't think we shouldn't give them shit about tantrums or, you know, occasionally screaming with something like night terrors. It's an awful thing to do. I mean, obviously there are limits of sleepless parents' sympathy, but I think we ought to have more sympathy for them. Well, I, w- I was thinking, it does seem like we should, with time, begin to go back, as as we're sort of writing, we're sort of rewriting history with our better understanding of race and sort of this idea of white supremacy, as we're, it also seems like we should rewrite history with a better understanding of trauma as we, as we, as we begin to understand it. Like, I was thinking about this with Marcus Aurelius specifically. So Marcus Aurelius has like 11 children and mm. eight of them died eight children like if 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 somebody lost one child and then they became an alcoholic we'd be like of course like obviously we wouldn't excuse the alcoholism but we'd be like you became an alcoholic because you lost your child that must have been very hard right like like there's there's almost nothing like no life change or event that would not be explained uh or rationalized by the loss of a child right and then you're like, oh, he oh only God. lost eight, <laughs> eight children. He he buried eight of his children. You're like, how, how did you, how did you wake up? Like, how did you get up, not give up entirely on other people in the world? And I, I mean, it's it's unfathomable, like to think about the trauma that people went through not that long ago and just had to accept as a function of of existence and then we then of course we're we're also shocked they're like they treated other people horribly imagine if you lost eight eight children what that would do for your empathy or your like your ability to just give a shit about what anyone else is going through at any moment as you're walking through the 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 world Right. I mean, I can't imagine the degree to which you would have to be like to, to become hardened even to survive. But one thing that occurs to me in it is, is the, the sheer awfulness of those things makes, at least to me, makes the achievements more impressive. Yes. Like for Poe, that he went on to articulate his grief in the way he did and these works that have survived time, pal, you know, 17 decades after his death or Marcus Aurelius, for that matter, that he went on to become this very effective and admirable leader. Wow, it's all the more an achievement because you've survived those things. Yeah, or somehow I, I, managed to incorporate them in any in any kind of existence that is productive in any way. Yeah, like, so people go like, what happened with Commodus, Marcus Aurelius' son? And it's like, maybe it was his dad and mom losing eight <laughs> children. Or maybe it was just him losing eight brothers and sisters. Like, that would fuck a person up a little bit. Yeah. I can't believe that anybody managed that. I really can't. I don't know that I have that kind of wherewithal at all. I mean, I, you know, you're a parent. No, it's 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 unfathomable to me. Like it it's unfathomable. I I even think there's part of this, this we're veering a little bit into political incorrect territory, but like we, mm. we sometimes like we'll look at like slavery or some of the like some of the stuff. Uh, the terrible stuff of history and we're like um you know we judge like uh thomas jefferson like sort of very harshly as as we should but we don't we don't put it in the context not of like everyone was doing it but we don't put it in the context of like okay here's a fact about thomas jefferson when thomas jefferson was president someone gave him a pet goat like as an official gift and it was kept on the at the white house and it just killed a kid like a kid was uh, walking around the White House grounds and just killed by a goat. And you're just like, oh, they just didn't value human life like much at all. Like the world was just a cruel, awful place, you know? And so I think sometimes when we look at something and we try to understand how like a human could own another human, I think we sometimes miss what's staring us right in the face, which is that like, life was generally awful and when people are themselves victims of a, a cruel uh unjust uh you know difficult world they also become victimizers and i think like i think we sometimes lose the context of like what it must have like you're like oh it could for poe it could have been that he was just walking down the street and someone drugged him 
beat him senseless and then he died from it a few days later because that was a relatively common thing just like happening and yeah and we just like that just recedes into the past as like a thing that wouldn't have colored his existence day to day yeah it's a question that i've like his perception of the cruelty i mean grotesque cruelty of his time i've wondered about it like you, you know from the book that one of his first jobs was in a building in Richmond that it was right by the slave market. So like couple scenes of, you know, family separation and so on. Like the overseers at the lot did you try to keep the that. drama out of it. Yeah, you would hear it. You would see it. Like people being dragged around in chains. And Poe wrote so much about horror you know, body horror, horror at the societal level too. He's more concerned with it than most people realize. And yet it, it doesn't appear. If it does, I mean, his, to, to his, his treatment of race are not what we would hope they would yeah. be. And that's like, how do you miss those things? But I also yeah. think that we're like, often when we look at history, when we have, no stake in it and it doesn't cost us anything <laughs> we're able to like kind of get on a moral high horse and be like oh i would have right done things so differently when people act like that about it's a condescending attitude toward it and it, i, I want to say like well show me the moral stance that you're taking up right now that's really costing you something i'm believe me i'm not endorsing Poe's inability to recognize those things at all it's horrifying but uh, people just treat it so easily. Right. It's easy to be very glib about slavery as you sit there in clothes made in a Uyghur sweatshop in China that, uh, you know, you could buy for 30% more that don't involve that, but you don't, right? Like, mm-hmm. like we, we sort of forget just the way in which, uh, we just accept what's happening in the world around us. Yeah, you walk down the street, you hear a slave market and a human being can just become attuned to it. But I think what Poe does uh, is clearly that affects him in some way because, it, and it gets sort of channeled, the darkness gets channeled into into the stories and that's why they're so haunting and, and uh, challenging. Yeah. I think it's probably true. He wasn't a guy who was routinely cruel. People report that he was pretty polite and gentlemanly. And he seems to have cared for people. You can tell it in his letters. I think he loved his wife very deeply. He had friends that were very close. But I also say like kind of sympathy was a one-way street for him, kind of flowed toward him, maybe because of the awfulness of this childhood. Maybe he just couldn't kind of direct it elsewhere except at himself. No, and I think when we understand the context uh, of the world, it also, it, as you said, it allows you to appreciate the greatness. So, like, I think about Lincoln, and when you read about, like, Lincoln's childhood, just how, like, horrendously mm. awful it was, right? And then you're like, and he still managed to, despite, like, despite all that, you know, as a drunk father, as a loser, and and this hard scrabble existence, this is this ugly, gangly guy, all this stuff that he has against him. And then he still, I mean, he's not perfect, but he still does more than the people around him care about what's happening to these other people, right? And and what, how, not just how rare that was, but that must have, that must have taken work, right? Because it would have been so easy to just be consumed with your own struggle and your own difficulties. Right, and God knows it wasn't politically expedient for him to care about this thing. Sorry sure. to uh, work that agenda. I don't know. I know it's trendy or kind of against the grain, but I actually believe greatness is a thing. I, I don't know that it can be achieved, but it doesn't mean that we can't emulate it um, or try to, like the habits of people who do those things. I don't know. I think that and you have to think that Lincoln was a bigger stronger personality than the ones around him. Well, look, it would be weird if you didn't believe in greatness for you to have written this book. 
Right. Uh, I know it goes against the grain a little bit. Like we, we're kind of moving away from the like big man theory of history, which is, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. And yet oh, I I'm think it's captivated. a terrible thing. You do? Yeah, of course. I mean, like, uh, uh, obviously it shouldn't be called the great man of history theory because, uh, you know, history has been changed uh, just as much by, by women. But uh, it strikes me as, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like if you don't believe that an individual can change the world, um, it certainly won't be changed by you. But like, yeah, we look at like, it's ironic people like the same people who will go like, Oh, like who sort of be cynical and make fun of people who think that they can like change things for the better are also the people who are very indignant about the terrible things that bad people are doing, but it cuts both ways. Like if, if, uh, if a terrible person can change the world for the 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 worse, why can't a, a a good person change the world for the better? Right, and if I mean, if you want people to disrupt systems that are racist or whatever, you have to believe in the power of the individual to do those things. If individuals are disempowered, how do we create change? I mean, I know people talk about change at the systemic level. I'm certainly not opposed to that, but how do how the system get changed. I think that's totally right. And I think often like as a, as a weird sort of minor political example, like I think like people in Austin uh, are like, we have a huge traffic infrastructure problem. So every time someone goes like, um, we like, let's expand the freeway. They go, we don't need more freeways. We need systemic, you know, change. <laughs> like, and it's like, cool, but that's not going to happen. So you're actually choosing your, your sort of, um, your belief in the need for systemic change is actually preventing incremental change, which is only making it systemically worse, right? And yes. so I think when people don't uh, believe that an individual can make a difference or that minor, small-term things matter, um, yeah, it's just, it feels like a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're but by, by by your idealism you are creating the seeds of your own cynicism to go back to beers. Right. And I mean, it's not, I don't know. My own feelings are just more pragmatic than that. And it's also ahistorical to think that these things don't come about by a series of kind of shitty, imperfect compromises, like any major change, that's how they happened. Totally. Totally. And it's like, there are people alive who like there was a there was just a guy who who died. I'm forgetting his name, but there was one uh, Democratic politician who personally, I think, proposed and passed two of three different constitutional amendments. Um, and you're just like, oh, yeah, that feels like it was a really long time ago, but it wasn't, you know, and that that it's still like just one person changed the changed or nearly changed the constitution, this supposedly permanent document like three times. And it's like, it's only because you're looking at it with a longer view that it seems possible, but it's when we zoom in, we go like, oh, an individual can't make a difference. Right. And it would probably, I mean, there were probably years of horse trading that went into any one of those changes. Yes. And it probably wasn't even executed in the form the guy hoped for in the beginning because things just don't tend to be. No, that that's that's totally right. Or just just that, like, um, I don't know. There's still people alive who met Winston Churchill. Like, there is an individual who changed the world. Like, not both both uh, you know in positive ways. If you live in America or England, you know, negative ways. If you live in uh, India or uh, you know uh, other countries, right? Like, like of course, an individual can change the world. Like, there's it, it's. It seems uh, it seems like all the evidence contradicts that assertion. I agree, and I would just add to you that, and of course, that person is deeply flawed, right? Yes. Wasn't Churchill like a pretty sorry father, all things considered? Uh, I mean, Church Poe, this is true of too. Like the genius was accompanied by some serious misbehavior as well, and a lot of. Uh, attitudes that were not what we would hope they would be. Uh, totally, totally. Um, 
I'm trying to think. Is there is there anything else people should know about Edgar Allan Poe, uh, or that you have learned uh, in the course of writing this book? That he's a hopeful figure. He's not at all. I mean, there's the kind of goth dark side of Poe, but when you consider the tragedy of his life and the context and the context of his accomplishment within the tragedy of his life, it's a tremendously hopeful story. I think it's actually quite positive. It's not our typical association with Poe, but I'm not the first person to read it this way. Uh, the French have for a while. Baudelaire wrote the book, seriously, 150 years ago. So it's not even new. <laughs> Other people have realized this too. Well, my favorite joke in your in your book is is the idea that a writer can become so famous that they that they name an NFL franchise after you. I mean, who can you say that of? No, and right. the fact that. Right. There's not a single other example. I can't think of anything even outside the NFL, like what other sports team in any line of has that sort of a connection to literature of all things. We think of these things as opposed, but the power of Poe imposing his personality on the world has shown that they can be related, which is amazing. I mean, that's greatness. Although the, the Cleveland Browns are the only NFL team named after like a regular person really who's do i should i know who brown is yeah paul paul brown like the the founder of the team he just named him after oh him. i see i see oh okay yeah you know <laughs> when i talk about professional sports i'm really wondering away from my area of expertise such as it is so no no it is it is funny though until i read that in your book i i was i just it was like yeah of course they're just named after the bird but you're not like oh no poe baltimore like, uh, like that, they didn't just pick the bird out of nowhere. It's like, right. it came from something. Yeah. This amazing poem about grief <laughs> was written in 1845. And it's one of the few poems almost anyone knows. Right. And yeah. No, just that there, I mean, just that there's a football team named after a poem, like is, is pretty unreal as well. And I'm sure almost nobody knows that. You wouldn't think it would happen in the U.S. of all places. We're not a nation that really values poetry. But I don't know. This is kind of the miracle of Poe to my mind, that he has that kind of vast influence. I think so. And uh, and he didn't live to, to see any of it, which is sort of the, tra the, the, the perfect Poe irony. I don't know if he could have handled success any better than he handled unsuccess, though, to be honest with you. So... That is, uh, that is, that is the perfect way to end this. Catherine, I love the book. I'm so glad we got connected and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks. This has been great, Ryan. Really enjoyed it. Hey, it's Ryan. If you want to take your study of stoicism to the next level, I want to invite you to join us over at Daily Stoic Life. We have daily conversations about the podcast episodes, about the daily email. We actually do a special weekend set of emails for everyone. You get all our daily stoic courses and challenges totally for free. That's hundreds of dollars of value every single year, including our new year, New You Challenge, which we're gonna launch in January. You get a special cloth bound edition of the best of meditations that we've done. You get a bunch of cool stuff. It's an awesome community. I've loved being a part of it. I've loved getting to meet everyone who's trying to take their study of stoicism to the next level. Love to have you join us. Check us out at dailystoiclife.com. We'd love to have you and join us on this digital stoa that, we, uh, that we've staked out together and get better every day. about the $100 wedding dress that just saved Abercrombie? Or the tech acquisition that was just like Game of Thrones? Or the one financial equation that can solve climate change? Then check out our daily podcast, The Best One Yet, or as we call it, T-Boy. This is Nick. This is Jack. And we pick the three most interesting business news stories every day for the perfect mix. 20 minutes each morning, you're going to feel brighter. We call it pop biz, don't we, Jack? Where pop culture meets business news. So whether you want to kick off a conversation with your buddies or you're going for that promotion at work or you just want to know the trends before your friends, feel brighter by starting your morning with us every weekday. Listen to the best one yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your pods. You can listen to the best one yet ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. For more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts.
With shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, and many more, Wondery means business. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, <laughs> I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shay Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondery. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f-ing best. Each week, Shay Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture themed trophies for six basketball related activities. Trophies like the Dominic Toretto I Live My Life a Quarter Mile at a Time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina Wine Mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.